Welcome to our Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers podcast with me, Emily Faramond. And this is part two of our discussion with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, which is also a Financial Times book of the year. We're going to start by delving into whether ESG can be value accretive. And I think that comes from a position of worrying about the burden and costs of associated regulation, reducing risk, influencing a just transition, all of that in the context of trying to remain a profitable business. Yeah, this is a, a, a really important question. I think the first thing to ask is, the, the first thing to point out, is often people use the term ESG as an umbrella term. So is ESG good or bad? Is it value accretive or value dilutive? But ESG comprises lots of different dimensions. So not only is it environmental and social and governance, but within environmental, there's water usage, there's climate, um, there's this carbon emissions, climate change, there's biodiversity, there's waste generation. Within climate change, there's physical risk and transition risk and climate change mitigation and adaptation. But for some reason, we just use this umbrella term and sweep lots of things under the carpet, not recognising there's a lot of heterogeneity beyond the umbrella. So I view ESG, and this was uh, the main point I made in my end of ESG paper, as being just like any other type of long term investment, which then dovetails to why I got into ESG to be start to start with, it's a long-term investment. Now, is investment value accretive? Well, it depends on the type of investment. Some investments are and some are not. And also, you're not always value accretive. There will be diminishing returns. So I think this is a problem with ESG because it has this special label. People think, well, everything within the ESG bucket is value accretive. And everything is also value accretive without limits. So let's try to have as much ESG as possible. Whereas, yes, we do want to treat our workers well and pay them well. But if we pay them too much, we're going to be addressing, uh, we're going to be running into cost issues. So I think um, this question here, it is a difficult question, but I would say it's no different to any other type of trade-off that companies grapple with in terms of just their normal business. For example, let's think about our raw materials. How do we remain profitable when trying to buy higher quality raw materials to increase the quality of our product? Well, there's a trade-off, and we see that better quality raw materials will help us make a better product, but after a point, um, we don't want to have uh, more. And obviously, calibrating that trade-off and finding that sweet spot is difficult, And I wouldn't say that there's easy silver bullet to it, but companies have existed for centuries trying to think about these costs and benefits. And I think this is the same for ESG. Let's decompose it into individual issues and then think about, well, what is the benefit of doing this versus the cost? If I pay my employees well, well, actually, this will be beneficial because I'm going to have less um, turnover, more retention. What is the benefit of this? Well, I can look at data. How much does it cost me in order to hire a new worker? Often some elements, might, some estimates might actually be 150% of their annual salary in terms of replacement costs, new hiring costs and so on. What is the effect of higher wages on recruitment and retention? I can look at that with data. So I would try to use data to the extent to possible to assess these trade-offs. But I think the first place to start is to recognise that a trade-off exists because often we see these blunt things like more ESG is always better. The higher ESG rating a company has, the better it definitely is when just like any other investment, there are diminishing returns. Thank you. Um, 
We see, particularly in some of our clients, that there are challenges and opportunities, particularly in the asset manager and asset owner's space, around how they decarbonize not just their portfolios, but also the real world. Um, be really interested in your thoughts around how they best manage that juxtaposition. Well, Emily, you've asked the really important question here. So how do we decarbonize the world, not the portfolio? And so the first thing to ask is, is divestment going to really matter? So there are cases in which portfolio decarbonization will lead to real world decarbonization. But those are cases in which there are not substitute forms of capital to come in and uh, reverse what we're doing. So with listed equities, I think that there are lots of substitutes. If I sell, there's loads of other types of investors which might buy. But for things like relationship bank lending, that is less likely to be the case. Why? Because what matters is the relationship with a particular bank. So if, say, the UK main lenders are saying, well, we're not going to be financing um, new coal projects, which is what Lloyd's has done, then actually this can have a large effect because maybe your relationship for a long time has been with Lloyd's, whereas with shareholders, you might not know many of the people who hold your shares. So to the extent to which you have fewer substitutes because a relationship is an issue, then um, you're actually decarbonizing your portfolio will lead to real world decarbonization. But then what do we do in listed equities? I think you can do two things. First, is the active engagement um, that you mentioned. It could well be that you're working with companies in order to hold them accountable for putting their transition plan into practice. If they don't, what can you do? You can vote against directors. You can vote against executive pay. You could put in shareholder proposals. You could nominate your own slate of directors, which is what engine number one did at Exxon. So active engagement, either individually or collectively, so there's collective engagement frameworks or, or organizations such as the Investor Forum, where many investors together can um, collaborate behind a shared agenda. But the second thing that you can do, in addition to engagement, would be selective divestment. And what do you mean by selective divestment? Rather than selling out of an entire industry, is you pursue a best in class strategy. So what this might involve is underweighting the fossil fuel sector, but being willing to hold companies which are best in class, such as the leaders which are really um, having a credible transition plan, as I referred to earlier. So why might that be better than outright divestment? Well, outright divestment will lead to a fossil fuel company thinking this, well, there's no point in me reforming myself because I'm going to be sold no matter what. But if I know that investors have a best-in-class strategy, that they will invest in me if I'm a leader, then this gives me more of, a, more of an um, incentive to reform because I know there's a chance that the investor will own my stock. And just to embellish on that a little bit more, I know you talk about it at length in Grow the Pie. One of the things I think our clients are challenged by is the interplay between active engagement, fiduciary duty and stewardship and how that drives sustainable outcomes. Yes. And what is important is to understand that there are certain um, 
actions which might be in contradiction with fiduciary duty. So fiduciary duty is your clients and these to clients, it's to generate long-term returns. Now, in maybe 80, 90% of cases, these things will completely overlap. So what's good for society is going to be good for investors. However, we do need to deal with the tricky trade-offs where these things will be conflicting in the absence of a carbon tax. Maybe it is actually more profitable for you to keep polluting because you're not having to pay the consequences of that pollution. Now, in these cases, often, well, nearly always, what will what will um, what will be paramount and and win is long-term returns because an asset manager you're not here to pursue your own social goals. You are custodians of your client's money and your clients invest in you in order to achieve long-term returns. So what does that mean? This means that making sure that anything that you do to um, serve wider society doesn't clearly reduce returns. Now, there might be certain things that you do which might be neutral to returns, but that's fine. So let's think about diversity. So the evidence on diversity and firm performance is hugely misportrayed. There are many papers which try to claim that diversity boosts performance, but due to confirmation bias, we all want this to be true. And so people lap this up uncritically, even if the evidence is really, really flimsy. What the most rigorous evidence suggests is there's no effect of diversity on performance, but that is still encouraging because that means that companies can pursue diversity with not a sacrifice to returns, you effectively get diversity for free. So this does allow you to pursue social goals which are not at the expense of returns, only in the case where there is going to be a clear cost of financial value might you want to um, to, to oppose this. For example, there was a um, shareholder proposal to require Sainsbury to pay the living wage. So that is higher than the minimum wage that's set by a completely um, separate body, the Living Wage Foundation. And in that case, because none of the other large supermarkets were paying the living wage, doing so would severely threaten um, Sainsbury's long-term future profitability. And so many investors voted against that proposal because there was a case where they saw a clear trade-off between um, their responsibility to their clients as fiduciaries. I'm really interested in your as to whether you would advocate for a carbon tax, actually. Oh, I absolutely would. And I, I nearly every or nearly every invest every economist that I know um, advocates. I don't know of any economists who's come out and said that they don't agree with this. Why? Because the whole climate problem is an externality. The whole issue of an externality is even in the long term, you don't bear the consequences of your actions. So many things. Yes, you do internalize the consequences. If I treat my work as well in the long term, they will leave. But an externality is I could be a, a fossil fuel company and who is losing? It could be um, a uh, owner of uh, real of beachfront property because they will be flooded. And so given I'm not going to bear the consequences, the way to force me to do that is a carbon tax to cause me to internalize the externality. Perfect. Just wondered whether you've got any thoughts um, around the challenges that a number of our clients are having around aligning their various stakeholders who have very different objectives um, and how to get consensus and buy-in over almost any decision in the, in the ESG and climate and sustainability space. 
Well, I think there will be many decisions, but not all, where there should hopefully not be a trade-off because these are things are good for the business's long-term success. So this is why a lot of my research has been on how to make the company sustainable and profitable in the long term. That's how I came to the topic to begin with. But there are cases in which there are trade-offs. So sometimes there might be um, trade-offs and disagreement between different shareholders. And so there could be some shareholders who believe that climate change is so important that they would sacrifice financial returns from doing so. And other clients who say, no, we really care about financial returns. We can't have that sacrifice. And so for an asset manager, what that would mean is that you would offer different products. So you might call some funds impact funds where you're sacrificing financial returns and other funds you would call normal sustainable funds. And, and you could be clear that we're using sustainability characteristics to enhance returns rather than being at the expense. I think where there's a lot of confusion and modelling is if funds market themselves as claiming we're going to achieve all of this social progress with no cost to financial performance when there are not always win-wins as we've discussed previously. But then what happens within um, stakeholders themselves beyond shareholders? For example, when employees lose from a, a closure of a plant, but the environment wins. I think it's just to recognise that a company cannot be all things to all people. Um, this is why purpose has to be focused. We need to recognise who is first among equals among our different stakeholders. Yes, we do care about employees, but maybe we're an energy company who thinks that climate change is so important that that comes first and beyond everything. And then what do we do with the stakeholders who lose? Well, first, we need to recognise it's not a company's responsibility to solve every single one of the world's problems, there is the government here. Should a company's goal be to reduce the unemployment figures and therefore they should not make anybody redundant? No, because if you're not going to make anybody ever redundant, then you're not going to close polluting plants. You're not going to be firing underperformers who are worsening the culture of your company or the performance of the company. But this is why the government comes in with things such as unemployment benefit. This is why we have um, nationally funded education to allow people to retrain. Now, sometimes these things might be insufficient. And so sometimes companies will go above and beyond and they will try to invest in outplacement. So when Airbnb cut 25% of its workers in the pandemic, it converted its recruitment department to an outplacement department. However, they didn't say, as a responsible company, we should never fire ever anybody. They recognise that to be sustainable, sometimes this does require downsizing. So sometimes we put too many expectations on companies. Not only, as you mentioned at the start, Emily, we expect them to tick all 17 SDGs. We also expect them to make a decision, make no decision that might harm somebody. Well, if that was the case, we would never have had banks introduce cash machines, because cash machines could make some people redundant. We might never have even had before that, um, say, um, washing machines and irons and so on, because people were concerned that that technology would keep people out of jobs. The same with tractors that now we see as taking mundane work and, and removing that from um, something that humans have to do. Thank you. Just moving on to, I suppose, capability building. In, in one of your recently published articles, you talk about applying economics and not gut feel to ESG, really calling for more, I think, analytical roles in organisations around data, economics and finance. 
Do you feel organisations are focusing on the right skill set when it comes to developing their in-house ESG capabilities? And if not, what more do they need to do? I think the first thing to recognise is, is, is skill sets are required. So often people think, oh, ESG, that's sort of fluffy. We can go by gut feel. And if the person's a nice and moral person, they're going to make the decision in the right way. But ESG requires a huge amount of expertise. So, yes, I did mention financial expertise. So in this paper, applying economics, not gut feel to ESG, I highlighted how a rigorous understanding of economic principles can help us navigate these really difficult trade-offs. But it's not just me talking my own book as a finance professor. Some of these skills will not just be economic skills. We want we might want climate scientists to understand how credible is this transition plan. I know of venture capital funds which will invest in healthcare where they will have ex-doctors who will work there because they can really understand the science behind these innovations. Uh, but what this means is that we do need, number one, a diversity of, of skill sets. It's not just finance, it's finance and climate and knowledge and biodiversity and the like. But number two, just to respect the skill and not necessarily have um, somebody who might be well-intentioned, but without the expertise to make these difficult decisions. Sometimes we get people from outside the corporate sector, so they might have been working at, at charities. And obviously, charities do huge amounts of good, and maybe they they still, when we can bring some of that expertise within the company, but making a corporate decision where you do have a trade-off between with financial returns, that's something where analysis might be needed, or we might want to have specific expertise from somebody who is a climate scientist or is somebody with expertise in healthcare, um, in addition to just obviously having um, the right general values and objectives. Thank you. And I think we're starting to play that through with some of the rhetoric from the FCA as well, in particular around expectations of people who fulfil these types of roles. Um, so lastly, just wanted to move on and get your thoughts around um, what makes a business a great place to work. And the reason why I'm asking this is, as you know, Baringa is and has been consistently deemed a great place to work, but we're also a B Corp. So I think we've definitely seen the value in both of those in our organisation, but interested to hear your thoughts on that. So um, Blueprint for Better Business, which is an organisation to promote a purposeful business, I'm honoured to be a new member of the Advisory Council, they define it as being a winning team on a worthwhile mission. So let me pick this apart. So the second part is obviously important, a worthwhile wish, and we need to not just be making profits. Profits are important, right? Companies are not charities, but we make profits by serving wider society. But the first part is often forgotten. We want to be a winning team. We want to be successful. To be a great place to work means winning. We want to achieve our objectives. If we think about a, a football team, certainly one which is lifting trophies is going to be one where the, 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 the players are going to be much happier uh, than in a, in a losing team. And so why, again, I think this is important is to highlight that ESG should not be divorced from standard business principles. Often the best way that you can serve society is by being great at your job. So this morning, I gave a lecture to my students as part of my job at LBS. What is the best way in which I created value? It wasn't by the fact that I biked to the tube station and then took the tube rather than driving. Yes, that did reduce my carbon footprint. But for me, 
the best thing that I might have done is just prepare for that lecture thoroughly. Make sure that it has rigorous theoretical content, but practical examples that those examples were modern and updated. They apply to different industries and so forth. So excellence at your core business can often be even more important than ancillary ESG activities. So to be a great place to work, yes, absolutely, we want to serve wider society. And if companies do things like employee volunteer programs and maybe matching charitable donations for people running for the London Marathon, that is great. But often just being really good at what you do through professional pride or recognising how what you're doing serves wider society. If I'm a children's toy company, what I sell is not just making money, but I'm helping to entertain and educate children, having that sense of purpose and that sense of purpose leading to winning, that's something which makes a great place to work. Fantastic. Thank you. And also congratulations on your role with Blueprint for Better Business and uh, well reminded that we also had Dee Corrigan from Blueprint on our podcast previously, should anyone want to listen to that. But Alex, it's been an immense pleasure having you on our podcast. It's been really insightful and I'm sure will resonate with so many of our listeners. Thanks again for taking the time. And of course, thank you to all our listeners. Thank you so much, Emily. It was really a pleasure for me to be on your podcast. Please do follow, like and share and look out for future instalments of Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers.